15 to 30 and can be found on page 1051. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these have I kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Sandra. Let's pray together. What is impossible with man is possible for God. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts to your possibilities this morning. Help us understand ourselves, understand you, understand your call upon our lives in a new way, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Mel, I've forgotten I've lost my clicker, so I'm just going to give you nods when I need to, to move on. <laughs> Good start. In our reading this morning, we read about a young, rich, and powerful leader who turns down a personal invitation from Jesus. Now, he's the only one in the Gospels who turns Jesus down. When Jesus says, come follow me, fishermen are prepared to leave their fishing business. Corrupt tax collectors are prepared to leave their booths. But when a religious, wealthy, rich kid meets Jesus, he turns him down. Why? We're going to consider that question this morning. But let's begin by thinking about money and memories. What's your earliest, earliest memory of money? Do you remember how much pocket money you used to get? Some of you may remember proper money like this. Remember? Pennies and um, half pennies. I don't remember farthings. I'm not that old. And what about threepenny bits? Weren't they great? And if you had a sixpence, wow, you were rich. And then, sorry for you that were born after decimal, but let us indulge ourselves for a little while. And what about shillings? 
and then two bob bits. Yeah, and then half crowns. Wasn't money more interesting in those days? And when you, when, you, when you counted your money, it was so much more fun putting them into piles and counting them, but you always felt your hands were a bit grubby, weren't you? And I love pennies because I always used to look at the date, and sometimes, this is 1966, but sometimes you got one from 1902 or something like that, a random penny that was so old with a picture of Queen Victoria on the back. Amazing. Memories of money. But I was given pocket money as a child, and I'm sure you were too. And I can remember discovering uh, that um, a child in my class at school uh, got twice as much pocket money as I did. And that didn't seem fair, and it didn't seem right. So I complained to my parents. They didn't seem to be interested. <laughs> I learned early on, when it came to money, some people have more than others. And I learned that unhelpful habit of comparing what I have with others and feeling resentful. But my parents also taught us to save money. They opened a post office account for each of us, and I would watch eagerly as the interest grew on my post office account. And then at the age of 14, I was um, away from home on a, a mission, church mission thing, and I saw in the market a mandolin. This is the very one. And I fell in love with this mandolin. I just thought it was amazing. I just loved the wood, the shape of it, and just the look of it. And I wanted it. So... I phoned up my mum and dad and said, I've seen this mandolin, I want to buy it. Can I buy it? And they said, well, if you've got enough money, if you've saved enough money in your bank account, then yes, you can. So I did. And I always dreamed that one day I'd, I'd travel the world with my mandolin <laughs> and play to people. Well, I never got... Well, I did kind of travel the world a little bit. I didn't take my mandolin. I went with Irene instead, which was actually, <laughs> actually much better. But I've still got my mandolin. So those are some of my um, money stories. But we all have money milestones in our lives, don't we? Our first pay packet, the first car we bought. Mine was a clapped-out mini. Of course, some of our memories about money may be very painful, maybe debt or even bankruptcy. We're also influenced by a parent's attitude towards money. And parents may have worried about money, or even argued about money, or we may have been told that it was a taboo subject. All these experiences are like, like bits of jigsaw um, that come together, and people refer to uh, as me money memories, and all these memories create a money story, and it's a story that can help us understand the way we see our money as adults. It can influence um, our giving and the way we relate to money. I asked a friend of mine um, on Friday, um, uh, about his money memories and he told me how his parents gave him pocket money and he was encouraged to tithe 10% of his income. So he was just to count out his money and, and put aside a certain amount which was, was his giving to church. And he did this faithfully as a child and then he carried on that discipline into his adult life when he got a considerably larger uh, income. But he noticed how he felt resentful if he um, felt he needed to give more than his 10%. And he reflected on this and thought, why, why is this? And he thought back, it's back, being back you know, to being a child where he counted out his money and put his pile that he'd give to church. And he thought, well, the rest of that is mine. You know, that's God's bit, that's mine. And he realized, he'd, actually, he needed to address that and realized that God, actually, um, it, it all belongs to God. God it, what we have is given to us from God. 
And when he realized that, we realized where that was coming from, he felt much more free and able to give generously at times and not just at 10% of his money. So what's your money story? And how does it impact on your attitude to money now? How does it affect your giving now? You see, the Bible has 2,300 verses. Steph will tell me if I'm wrong at the end. On wealth and possessions. Is that about right? Hey, you got a book? Oh, there you go. With them in, okay. Uh, but the way we understand those truths is shaped by our own experience of money. Because we're not blank sheets. You know, we, we have our own um, experiences and perceptions about money. And so when we read these verses, it, it's impacted by how we see money ourselves. And um, it can stop us from experiencing the liberating truth about money and wealth that we have in the Bible. It can be a hindrance in our discipleship. So let's explore what this young man's money story might be. And the passage that we're looking at today has got a question, it's got an answer, and it's got a conversation. So first of all, what's the question? Thank you, Mel. The first question is, that the young man asks, um, is, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But just before Jesus approaches, um, sorry, just before this young man approaches Jesus, if you read the bits before this passage, you'll notice that Jesus has found himself surrounded by parents from the local toddler group. They all want Jesus to bless their child. Look in verse 15, it says, people were bringing babies to Jesus to, to, for him to place his hands on them. The disciples, however, thought Jesus was far too busy and important to be bothered by children. So they were sending them all away. But then Jesus calls the children. He says to them in verse 17, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. And why am I emphasizing this? Well, I think, and well, I don't think commentators think, that Luke deliberately placed his material in this order. He deliberately talks about Jesus talking to children before he talks about this young rich man coming to Jesus. He deliberately talks about the ease in which, with which a child trusts Jesus, and he contrasts that with the struggle that the wealthy have to let God do the work and bring them into the kingdom. The question the young man has, has is, good teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? But what's interesting is the way that Jesus responds to this man, the gentleness in which he approaches and responds to him. Jesus could have made absolute mincemeat of him, but he doesn't. He gently encourages him to reflect on his attitude towards money and the motivations in his life. Luke describes this young man as a, a certain ruler, so it probably means he's from the ruling class. Today, he would have been born in Chelsea, driving an urban tractor. He will be well-connected and carry a sense of entitlement. And this way may well have shaped his attitudes towards money. One writer asked these questions. He says, did he learn early on that wealth was a sure sign of God's blessing? Did family wealth isolate him from his community or make him hard of heart towards the poor? Did he come to believe that his identity and his status lay in his wealth? We don't know. But what we do know is that this is the only person in the Gospels to turn Jesus down. The young man calls Jesus good teacher. 
And Jesus uses this as an opportunity to, to help him to think deeply about what he said. Perhaps this young man's used to sort of using flattery to get his own way, but this doesn't wash with Jesus. Jesus gets him to think about what he's, what he's saying. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. He hadn't really understood what he was saying and what God's goodness was all about. If he had, he wouldn't be asking this question because it's not about what we can do to earn eternal life. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Jesus makes him think, not just about how he sees God, but then how he sees other people. He reminds him of um, the commandments. Look in verse 29. He says, you know the commandments, don't you? No illicit sex, no killing, no stealing, no lying. Honor your father and your mother. Jesus picks out the commandments which are about our relationships with others, not those ones about our relationship with God. Because he wants him to think about how he treats other people. And has he really kept all of those since he was a boy? Jesus seems to be suggesting that his thinking is really quite superficial. He hadn't really thought about how good God is and how his own life didn't match up to the standards in God's commands. But Jesus is gentle with this young man. In Matthew's gospel, we read the same story of the young man coming to Jesus. But in Matthew's gospel, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then Jesus gives an answer to his question. So what is Jesus' answer? Well, it's a surprising one. Look in verse 22. Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You might think, well, we're getting a, bit, a few mixed messages here. Is Jesus saying that you can buy your way into heaven after all? That if you sell everything and give it to the poor, that you will receive eternal life? I don't think he's saying that at all. What Jesus has done is identified the idol in this man's life. He's put his finger on what the real issue is. The blockage is that money is the most important thing in his life, that his possessions and his wealth are where his heart and his identity is found. Because we read in verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus was saying that he needed to get rid of the idol in his life. This was the only way that he could be liberated to love God and serve others. You see, giving frees us to engage with others. It may start with a command, but it ends with joy. Because giving is a delight. And to relinquish the claim of wealth in our lives is to be free to follow Jesus and minister to others. It's to obey the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Because money can become an idol for all of us. It can become our driving force in our lives. It can shape our attitudes to those in need. It can grip us, paralyze us, stop us growing as Christians. And when faced with a choice, the rich kid chooses money and possessions. No wonder Jesus says it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, like a camel squeezing through the eye of a needle. He chose to try that way, to buy his way in, to work his way into the kingdom, and he walked away. So, we've heard the question, we've heard Jesus' answer, and all of this sparks a conversation. 
Thank you, Mel. Because we mustn't forget there's an audience in this story. There's a crowd of people gathered around listening and watching to what's happening. They're coming to their own conclusions. But now a conversation is about to start. Those who are listening say in verse 26, who then can be saved? You see, it was commonly thought that, if, that riches were a sign of God's blessing. So the rich, in a sense, were already halfway to heaven. But Jesus is saying that it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom. So this seems like a complete turnaround. If the rich, with all their resources, can't be saved, then what hope is there for the rest of us? And then Jesus says these wonderful words. What is impossible with man is possible with God. You see, when you're rich, and actually we're all rich here this morning, compared to many people in the world. When you're rich, it's hard to depend entirely on the mercy of God. But salvation for rich and poor is always God's work, not ours. It comes as a gift to those who ask in faith, believing that Jesus died in our place for our sin. But what is sobering is that money and possessions can come in the way of receiving this. It did in Jesus' day, and it does today. We often say that money can open doors, but it can close them too. But there's another voice in the crowd that wants to be heard. It's Peter, the one that always speaks up. But he's saying something important. Look in verse 28. He says, we have left all we had to follow you. They'd left their fishing businesses and their families to follow Jesus when Jesus called them. You see, Peter had got what Jesus is talking about. The call on their life was to leave everything to follow Jesus. And that is what they did. Of course, Jesus called others as well. Others that were called to stay where they were. To work out their discipleship in their everyday jobs and in their homes. And Jesus continues to call people today, disciples. For some it is to leave everything and to go. For others it's to stay where we are. But to both there is a challenge to release the grip of wealth in our lives. To refuse to let popular culture or consumer society, or our money stories shape our relationship to wealth and to allow the gospel story to shape us, to discover the freedom of sharing what we have with others, to use our wealth to further God's kingdom. But one final word as we close. I try and meet with our Iranian brothers um, during the week, um, and uh, we go through um, the sermon, the passage we're going to look at. I don't preach a sermon to them, we try and do a bit of a Bible study. I ask them questions, they ask me questions. And it's really helpful for me to listen to how they understand the text and hear the questions that they have. And I was interested to hear how they responded to the final verse. I'm going to read it to you from the message. Yes, said Jesus, and you won't regret it. No one has sacrificed home, spouse, brothers and sisters, parents, children, whatever, will lose out. It will all come back, multiplied many times over in your lifetime, and then the bonus of eternal life. You see, this isn't just about money. It's about everything we have. Jesus' call to come follow him means everything else is second place. It might be that God tells us 
to give away some of our money, all of our money. But the most important thing is what is first place in our life? And we have among us those who've had to leave family. And when I ask our brothers about this, this is what they said. They said, it's not a loss. We are in the early stage of receiving something more precious and valuable. What you leave behind is just a deposit for a greater reward. Those are humbling words, aren't they? To give is to be liberated, to discover what is most precious in our life, to love God and to serve one another. Wealth gets in the way when it's got first place in our lives. It can be a blessing in God's kingdom, to God's people, and in our journey of discipleship. Is there one thing in your life that you lack? Is there one thing you think Jesus may say to you? One thing you lack? Let's let's just close our eyes and spend a few moments in quietness as we respond to what the Spirit may be saying to us. And as we hear afresh his call to each one of us, come, follow me. Lord, we recognize that uh, your call in 